Hey y'all, welcome to Well, Well, Well by LRH Wellness. I'm your host, Lexi, and this is where we dive deep into all things health and wellness. Here we get into the wellness weeds, call out health inequities, and work towards living a more well life, all centering Black perspectives. Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Well, Well, Well. It's me, Lexi, your host. And today is a solo episode. But before we get into the episode, I want to say happy halfway through June. This is episode 23 of Well, Well, Well. And while 23 is no monumental number, we just passed 22, which is a pretty exciting thing. I'm just excited to have had so many episodes, I've had so many wonderful guests, and to know that there's so many more coming in June. And to celebrate Juneteenth and Blackness with you all, I am just always amazed and so grateful for the support I feel from this podcast and to just be able to educate and learn together with you all from our amazing guests and to hear your comments and thoughts on the podcast and to hear what you guys want to talk about, to hear your wellness questions and share in this wellness journey together. And so, you know, I'm just really grateful. And although 23 is no big milestone, it is a big milestone. I'm claiming it as such because I'm just excited to celebrate with you all. With LRH Wellness, not much is new, you know. I have been thinking a lot about celebrating and not knowing when your moment is and thinking of how to spread the word of black wellness, right? And thinking about how the mission of LRH Wellness is twofold of one, showing black people that we deserve wellness and that wellness is important to us. And then two, getting us the tools and resources to embark on that journey. And that goal, that two-part task is difficult and I have to remind myself sometimes that in that two-part task you know it takes it's it takes time and it's not built overnight and I think about all the exciting things that are occurring and the new people I'm working with and all the new projects and how slowly but surely community is being built and you know, we're building a small hub of wellness in a small haven away from a world that makes us think we don't deserve being well. And I'm just excited to see those things coming to fruition. The labor of love is there. But besides that, today's episode is fitting because right now I am very hungry. I am recording late at night. Well, not late at night, but like later in the day, which I normally always record like right when I wake up. So normally I do like a 5 a.m. recording, but I'm recording at 7 and I'm hungry for dinner. And this episode is all about soul food, baby. Yes, we're going through culinary history. I'm walking you through some of, you know, my favorite things about soul food, a little bit of our history and so much more. So stay tuned. I'll be right back after this short break and you'll learn more about soul food. Let's talk about soul food. What is soul food? Soul food is shorthand for the black American cooking that originated mainly in Georgia, Mississippi, and Alabama. So the black belt. And that food was then 
taken out of the South and migrated with Black people. And it migrated throughout the South as well, throughout slavery, right? And that food has existed for 400 plus years, right? It existed as a result of Black people being brought to this country and trying to find home in cooking. I will suggest some books at the end of this episode that really resonate on this topic and I found really informative. I love food history personally, love, love, love learning about food history and food culture, but what's important to note is that soul food is more than just the food itself. It's the history behind the food, right? And so soul food was food of celebration. We have to think very critically, right? Black people were given the scraps. And most Black people ate pretty, pretty much vegan as enslaved peoples. And so on special occasion when given special privileges, you know, a little more of the food they were given, so cornmeal, occasionally pieces of hog, pork, you know, sometimes chicken, sometimes the ability to raise their own fruits or vegetables, there was cause for celebration, a feasting, a birthday, a death even, um, being able to gather as a family a wedding, or just the desire to remind themselves of home. A big staple in soul food is rice, um, and that is something that was actually brought to America. Rice is not indigenous to America, and that was a big reason that Black people were brought to America to cultivate rice. Native people did not know how to do it. Black people of West Africa did. It was native to Africa, and so soul food was born of this mix, this mixing of food cultures, of West African food culture, of Native American food culture, and of this unique culture that was built by enslaved people of trying to take the scraps given and create something delicious, something unique, something worth celebrating. So soul food has this rich history that goes beyond just, you know, we took the scraps and made them good. But it has this rich history of taking parts of cultures that were ours and weren't and mixing them together. And that's where you see influences that are very regional, right? So you see the Creole culture coming in. You see French cooking coming into play in Louisiana. You have to think that, you have to realize that, you know, enslaved people were treated slightly different in different regions and enslaved cooks were given different privileges. They were, you know, considered household slaves, enslaved people, and were given privileges that people in the, in the fields were not. And so part of that was education. Many of the enslavers, uh, many of the white people would read the cookbooks to the enslaved and the enslaved would follow the instructions, add what they knew would be best, and would follow the recipes. In, in Louisiana, many of the Creole slaves, many of the black slaves would be given privileges of training under French chefs and being able to come back to cook the white people the food they wanted. So these enslaved chefs were given quote-unquote privileges of being educated 
in cooking techniques that they then brought in southernized, they solified, they made into the knowledge they had, they adapted it to this black cuisine, to this soul food cuisine, adapting the foods that was already here available that we enjoyed to make it available to their own people as well when they didn't have the fancy ingredients. And so soul food has such a rich history and it looks different throughout each kind of region of the South, but really what soul food is is the thing that was taken out of the South. So each, you know, region within the South, you know, you have Nashville hot chicken, you have those same, you know, Louisiana Creole cooking, has their own kind of flavor of soul food. But soul food in general is what was taken out of the South, and that's because as people migrated, as the Great Migration occurred, and as people left the South, as, you know, enslaved people were got free as they escaped the South, yes, but as slavery ended and the Great Migration occurred, people wanted a piece of home with them, something familiar. And that's where you see the origination of soul food occurring. Before then, it wasn't really called soul food. It was just, you know, what black folks ate. And with that, you see the name soul come in. It didn't really come until the 40s. And that's with the jazz movement. So soul food, again, it's more than the food itself. It's the sound of celebration. It's gospel of the black church. Simply said, it's soul. It's a feeling. It's a celebration. It's community. It's coming together to celebrate. And, you know, there's often this confusion of soul food versus southern food. And you think of southern food as being a white thing. Paula Dean, Trisha McIntyre. Whereas soul food is really that blackness in it. The celebration of black people. And it is more than just fried chicken and biscuits. It is the environment, what it is for, what it represents, and the history behind it. Southern cuisine is frankly a little more bland than when you see soul food. Soul food incorporates many more spices, more fats, more frankly indigenous traditions as well because soul food pulls from indigenous tradition as well. And you know, there's many myths about soul food, especially because as soul food has become more mainstream, there has been a very large co-opting of it by white chefs and black chefs have been left out of that. And that's really unfortunate, but we know why those things occur, right? Racism. Black people are left out of our own history all the time. And it's co-opted as American history and white invention when we know that's not true. But there's so many myths around soul food and a lot of those are to perpetuate anti-blackness. And the biggest myth is that soul food is the reason for obesity in black America and inherently unhealthy. unhealthy. And part of that is the belief that soul food is what black people eat all the time. And we know that's not true. So as I said before, most enslaved black people were eating as if they were vegan. They were eating cornmeal, some grains, maybe some meat if they were lucky, but mostly vegetables if they could grow them and not that nutritional, you know, cornmeal. Ash cake, if you've ever heard of it, was like a big meal for the enslaved. So the meager 
you know, meals and filling of the enslaved were not the luxurious fried chicken, biscuits, cornbread, mac and cheese. You know, they weren't eating that. That was not accessible to the enslaved. Now, on the occasions, and you're thinking this is later down the line, like once you're starting to think of emancipation time, where that was accessible, those things were expensive. Black people weren't rolling in dough like that. Those things were expensive, so they were celebration meals, weddings, church um, revivals, all of those things were celebrated, celebratory meals where soul food would be held. And so that anti-blackness surrounding this belief that our food is always unhealthy and it is inherently what we eat all the time and the result of obesity in black America is also leads to a conversation on fat phobia. There's this incredible book and I'll, I'll say the title of this again. It's called Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. And this book talks about how Fat phobia is founded in anti-blackness. And that is really evident in how black food and how soul food is perceived by people across the board, across the world. American food, soul food is viewed with such vitriol and just perception that it's gross and fattening without recognizing that every culture has a celebratory food. If you think of meatballs, spaghetti, big lasagnas, Italian people don't eat that every day. It's a big celebratory meal. The big meals of every culture are fattening gluttonous. Yes, because it's celebration time and you deserve to indulge for celebration. But black people in our soul food and the culinary experience we've created is often viewed with this kind of perception that it's and all the time food for people. And yes, as people became more wealthy, and I use wealthy with hesitation, but as people had more privileges with their money and these foods became more accessible, they could eat them more often. But for most black people, you don't fry chicken every single meal. And you definitely don't fry single servings, right? Black food and soul food isn't something that is inherently unhealthy, just like any food. It's all about moderation and portions and, you know, eating until you're satiated and not until you're stuffed, all of those good things. But people's relationship with food and feeling guilty for eating this food is very interesting because, like, people talk about indulging in, like, a bowl of ice cream. And... The permission given for indulging in that bowl of ice cream is very different than the permission given for indulging in some Popeyes, indulging in a bowl of chicken. I've seen people wait when I was in, I, I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, and I used to see people wait blocks, like hours, in line for Georgetown cupcakes. That was always like, ha ha ha, funny thing we do. Because the cupcakes are so good, you indulge in this dozen pack of cupcakes, whatever. You spend two hours in line. But, the, you know, when you flip that and the idea that people waited two, three hours in line for some Popeye's chicken sandwiches and 
the disgust and shock and awe people met that with, it was very different. Black America is met with vitriol from every, every angle possible, but it's really interesting how food is often forgotten. You know, thinking about how food is used as a tactic to shame. And food is used as a tactic to shame everybody because America and Western society is very anti-fat and very fat-phobic, but it is used in a very anti-black way as well. So I bring it back to that idea of Another great example are people who do like the 5,000 or 10,000 calorie challenges on YouTube. I one time saw a girl do like a 10,000 calorie challenge where she just ate like fried chicken. She ate like three family sized meals at Popeyes. And the comments, you know, it was this skinny white girl, and the comments were like, oh my gosh, can't believe she did that, ha ha ha, blah blah blah, or like, that's a lot, but whatever, like, I wonder if she'll lose it, you know, not great comments, but still like very like, lol. Then, you know, you see, and you see videos of like, black women, fat or not, eating fried chicken, and caricatures are created. And so let's talk a little bit about the caricatures created of black people eating soul food and how that was a tactic of racist Jim Crow. So many people don't know, you know, the watermelon stereotype, watermelon fried chicken. Watermelon and fried chicken were a sign of prosperity for black Americans after slavery, after the Emancipation Proclamation. So fried chicken because chicken was expensive, being able to fry it, spend money on oils, spend the time to do that. You literally needed money to be able to do that. So being able to fry chicken was a sign that you had money to be able to do that. Remember, chick fried chicken is a celebratory food. Watermelon was literally a business endeavor for black people after slavery. Being able to grow and sell watermelon was a business venture that many free blacks were embarking upon. White America used... These two new signs of prosperity for black, and they're not new, but these two signs of prosperity for black Americans to degrade us. They made these caricatures, they made these really offensive racist symbols to create stereotypes that were really, you know, to degrade how we were succeeding, to deter us from this new way to wealth and way to show prosperity, and way to celebrate said prosperity. Now, it sounds so silly when I say it like that, right? Black people could grow some watermelon and make some change. So white people made fun of them so badly that to this day, there are black people who will not eat watermelon in public. And that being said, the same idea, there are black, and with the change of black people made from selling watermelon, they would go fry chicken, they would buy money, they would buy money, they would buy the chicken to fry, to go eat, to celebrate making money. And because they were celebrating making money, because they were celebrating being free, having freedoms, having family, celebrating life, 
white America made so much fun of them that there are black people who, again, will not eat fried chicken in public to avoid being that stereotype, right? So our food culture has been weaponized and everything it represents and the, the rich history it comes from has been, frankly, bastardized to shame us into not celebrating our history with, you know, interrogating how we approach indulging in one thing versus the other. So indulging cupcakes versus a fried chicken sandwich and all of that. We also have to talk about creating sustainable relationships and associations with food because in this conversation, you know, I do talk about soul food as a celebratory food, but there are many pieces of soul food that you can have every day, you know, okra, greens, collards, all those things. And being able to recognize that our food comes with this rich history and our food works for us. And, you know, that's actually our wellness tip a little later. But thinking about the ways in which that our food fuels us is a really beneficial thing. And, like, thinking about how this rich history behind our food empowers us and how we should feel empowered to continue that legacy and continue owning it. And you see a lot of that with people owning our food history now, creating gardens and communities, teaching young people about our food history, you know, dispelling rumors that our food's unhealthy, remaking old recipes new, or like showing healthy version versions of what we used to make. So instead of doing everything fried, showing it baked, showing it grilled, all of those options are really special. And so I keep talking about how we need to celebrate, how we need to celebrate, how we need to celebrate. But the biggest thing is community, right? Our food history is rich. Our food history is exciting. And as I said before, you know, nobody knows how to make a single piece of fried chicken. Nobody's doing that. Nobody's making a single serving of mac and cheese. At least not black baked mac and cheese the way it's supposed to be made. We are coming together, eating as a community, doing this together. Part of soul food is sharing that soul together. Being a community, eating together, celebrating together. That's what makes soul food so exciting. That it is a chance for us to celebrate, for us to share together, to come to the table and to celebrate, to let it go, let the day go, let our worries go and celebrate in this wonderful meal. And so there's so much richness in this food history. I could go on and on about soul food and the culinary history behind it. But some books that really have educated me and have made me so passionate and so exciting include The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South by Michael Twitty. Soul Food, The Surprising Story of American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time by Adrian E. Miller. And on Netflix, there's a new show called High on the Hog, How African-American Cuisine Transformed America. And the book I mentioned earlier was Fearing the Black Body, The Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, and that's by Sabrina Strings. So all these books are really great for understanding fat phobia, yes, but also food history more and learning about Southern cuisine. So I'm going to come back with your wellness tip and your wellness question of the week. Stay tuned, everybody. Let's be honest, wellness is hard. 
but it doesn't need to be. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're looking for ways to approach your wellness that accounts for the wholeness of you. I'm excited to announce to my listeners that I'm launching Accountable, a one-on-one wellness coaching program with me, Lexi, the founder of LRH Wellness and host of Well, Well, Well. As your coach and wellness champion, I will work to create a tailored program that will guide you to achieving your wellness goals. Sign up today for a free consultation while spots remain. This week's wellness tip is food as medicine. I was talking about this a little bit earlier, but your food should work for you, right? Food is so important to our bodies and we want a sustainable association and relationship with food. And part of that is knowing first, what does your food do for you? Eating with intention with and educating yourself on your food is so critical in that relationship. Knowing that food makes you feel good and knowing why it makes you feel good is so important. And I've talked about this before, but simple things like knowing how food is the first part of your health. Our ancestors use food as the first line of defense. Not only does what we eat matter, but what we eat when we eat it and how we eat it is so important as well. And so food science can get really complicated, but just some tips for today are one, educate yourself. Educate yourself, know your body, know what makes you feel good and what makes you feel bad. Two, moderation. There are no good foods, there are no bad foods. It's all about moderation and how you approach them. Three, Take your time. Slow down when you eat. Four, use spices. They're anti-inflammatory. They will help your digestive system. They will lead to long-term health benefits. And five, you know, this sounds so silly, but start with your vegetables. The order of your foods matters. Starting with your vegetables unlocks the maximum nutrients you can get from those leafy greens, from those really high fiber vegetables. So start there. This week's wellness question is, how do I go vegan and still honor black food culture? Great question. So a lot of black people think they can't go vegan and still enjoy the foods they love that's dear to their hearts. And you know, that's just not true. There's so many takes on being vegan and plugging LRH Wellness I have a whole plant-based program, so if you are considering going plant-based, that's a wonderful first place to check. Um, In that program, I offer recipes, and I plug a lot of my own favorite chefs and um, black vegan influencers and blogs I think are really influential into how I approach being plant-based. But remind yourself, black people for the largest part of our history, were vegan. They ate mainly plant-based food, and yes, that was an accessibility thing, but our ancestors still knew how to make it taste good. So you can still honor your food history, your food culture, while being vegan. And there's so many incredible and exciting things chefs are doing to, you know, take modern twists on vegan foods to make those soul foods vegan to adapt them to a vegan diet. It takes time to ease into those things and to get to the more creative things, but it is possible. You know, I 
make a mean, mean South Carolina style pulled pork with jackfruit instead of pork. And you might not believe it, but it's really good. And I've had people tricked by thinking that it was actual pulled pork. But my point is that there are ways to do it and it shouldn't intimidate you. And the most important thing when you're transitioning to being vegan or plant-based is take your time. Nobody's transition to a full plant-based diet will look the same. So if that is something you're considering, start small. Start with, you know, meatless Mondays. Start small, start swapping out here and there, and it'll become easier. And the transition will be much more simple if you do it that way because your taste buds will adjust much faster. So that being said, definitely check out my program. It's called Plant Power, but also give yourself space, grace, and check out some of the incredible, you know, programs and Instagrammers and chefs that are online. And if you need a place to start, check out my program or my Instagram. I got tons of recipes there. And, you know, it's much easier to do it now with so many people in this field and chefs, you know, starting to cook vegan. But it's very, very doable. And reminder, you know, my ancestors did it. So you can do it too. Thanks for listening to another episode of Well, Well, Well by LRH Wellness. If you found this podcast helpful or it resonated with you, make sure you like, subscribe, share, and give it a five-star rating. Check out lrhwellness.com to see available wellness programs and consider supporting work. I'll talk to you next week. Bye.